The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Medical Education Matters. I'm Michael Brown, and I'm so excited to bring you a couple of conversations that Herodotus Ellenus and I recorded with two of our collaboratories. What are collaboratories? As many of our listeners know, our collaboratories program is our small grants program designed to fund transformative medical education research. The word collaboratory combines the words collaboration and laboratory, and it refers to a group of people from different backgrounds and at different institutions who use their differences and their unique perspectives to solve a problem in a new and innovative way. Uh, We launched this program back in the fall of 2020 with a request for proposals. We went from letters of intent to full proposals, and then we ultimately funded six research collaboratories. So their funding started in the summer of 2021, and then in the summer of 2022, we extended funding for all of these collaboratories for another year. So these conversations are designed to hear about the program so far and about their plans for this second year of funding. The two conversations today are with Julie Hazlip at the University of Virginia about her collaboratory, which focused on the psychological construct of mattering, and then with Sean Tackett at Johns Hopkins about mapping blind spots in medical education. We hope you enjoy the conversations. Dr. Hayslip, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Collaboratories uh, podcast. I just wanted to find out a little bit from you, your title of the project, and of course, the members of your team. So the title of our project is Characterizing Cultures of Mattering in Healthcare Education. And the members of my team, I'm at UVA, and uh, Natalie May is also at UVA. And then from the Medical College of Wisconsin, we have Drs. Karen Mark-Dante, Rana Higgins, and Caitlin Patton. And you mentioned UVA. Is that the University of Virginia uh, School of Medicine? Is the School of Medicine and Nursing? Is there any particular delineation that we have on that? So I actually am duly appointed in the schools of medicine and the school of nursing. Uh, and Natalie also is um, affiliated with both. Tell us more about kind of that dynamic of bringing the nursing perspective in here. What do you think that adds to this uh, this field of medical research? Well, I've had a longstanding interest in interprofessional education and as you know, everyone probably listening to this podcast is aware, we don't practice um, medicine or healthcare in a silo. And when we're talking about a concept like mattering, where it's really about how we interact with others, the relationships that we have with other people, I think if we were exploring this only in one profession, we'd be losing a lot of our understanding of the of the concept of mattering in healthcare. Yeah, and. and- Julie, you you mentioned um, things like mattering and the interprofessional aspect of it. I'm curious of what what really prompted you to propose this piece as part of a transformation in medical education project? Well, so in 20... 
2013, 2014, I actually did a master's in applied positive psychology. This was after I had already been practicing medicine for a number of years. And that's where I first learned about mattering. And the operational definition of mattering is to make a positive impact in the lives of others and to be significant in the world around you. And when I first heard that, it just resonated with me so deeply that this is what healthcare is about. Um, you know, we want to have a positive impact on the lives of the people with whom we're interacting. Um, and and we also want to be significant, right? Um, or sometimes it's more simply defined as adding value and feeling valued. And that, that to me seems like the heart of everything we do in healthcare. And so that's, that's why I got started studying this um, and how it ultimately evolved into this project. When we all talk about um, mattering and the value, and I think as important it is today, in the work that we do in healthcare, these connections, this people piece that is important for us. And it sounds as like that was the, the majority, the principal aspect of this project for you. Is that, is that what resonates to you? So uh, there, there's a lot in that question. Uh, um, so if you'll forgive me, this might be a little tangential, but I think it comes back to the importance of this. You know, this is a hypothesis that I have. I haven't yet proven it, but I think we're on the way. Um, I think it's the meaning of a profession that gets you started in it, and it's the mattering that keeps you there. Uh, it's this idea that, you know, when we've heard about burnout, when we hear about people choosing to leave their professions, they still oftentimes can talk about why their profession was meaningful. But in the very first study that I did about mattering, or my colleagues and I did, it wasn't just me, um, we asked the question, what's the meaning of your work? And people could very easily and concisely define what the meaning of their work was. And then we'd ask, tell us about a time when you felt like you mattered. And there was a subset of people that we interviewed who said, I can't remember the last time I felt like I mattered at work. And I thought that that was simply tragic, right? The work that we do in healthcare is so rich and so um, impactful, and yet people are going home at the end of the day not feeling like what they do matters. And when we talk about people getting burnout, when we talk about our students being depressed and disengaged, you know, these are things that we can address. Um, and if we can enhance the mattering in our clinicians, in our students, in our teachers, that's only going to make it better for everyone. You know, Julie, I, I really like you, you know, kind of bringing us a little bit on your journey of this and, and some of your early research and how it shapes now. I'm wondering from a survey of the field of mattering, you mentioned burnout. What are some of the other things that mattering or not mattering is associated with? What is it? What are those outcomes that really makes this a passion project for you? Well, so my colleagues and I, so the, the folks at MCW and then those of us who are here at the University of Virginia, as far as I'm aware, we are among the only ones studying mattering in healthcare. There's been one other small study um, that was published fairly recently, um, but we're, I think we're the only ones doing this uh, to, to the extent that we are. Um, 
I'm sorry, I lost your question. <laughs> so I'm I'm just wondering, you know, there's there mattering, I think, is one of those concepts that is inherently good and it has a lot of face face validity. You hear about it and you recognize uh, why it matters, why mattering matters. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, it it strikes me it must be something that's more than just a feeling. It's, it's something more than just some warm fuzzies. Uh, there must be real outcomes that mattering connects to and predicts. And I was wondering what some of those outcomes are that really make this from more than a, a good feeling project to something that really drives you. Right. Well, so the first research about mattering actually came out of social psychology and was looking at um, primarily teenagers and adolescents um, in their families of origin and whether or not they felt like they mattered and how that impacted their outcomes as you know teenagers and students. Um, and from that, it ended up kind of moving into the educational literature and people were looking at how students performed as a result of feeling like they mattered or not mattered in the class, in the classroom. And there they've been able to demonstrate clearly that students, um, again, primarily in um, early education, um, middle school, high school, but now there's more data also in the university setting. Um, students do, do better. Um, if they feel like they matter in their academic environments. And so um, so that that I think we can say is established. Um, but there's also a, a growing literature about um, mattering at, at work and how that um, relates to engagement and continued productivity in work. Um, and then, um, there is also you know, some more philosophical kinds of writing about the relationship between mattering and other markers of well-being. Um, and so I think it's a relatively young field still, um, but I think that the more we learn, the more we're recognizing how important it is in terms of overall well-being, both personally and professionally. Yeah, and, and and Julie, you know, it, it's amazing to me on some parts, you know, the meaning of life, right? Mm -hmm. Where did it start? Where is it needs to go? Or where should it go? I'm I'm curious about when your team came up with this proposal. I know you had ideas of what a team should look like, and what a proposal should be, you know, we were asking for this audacious proposal that is going to transform medical education, take us to the future. Can you help me a little bit with that um, journey to create the team, to put the proposal together, the timeline and so on? I had published some of those early findings um, that we had in our research from the University of Virginia around mattering. And that led Karen Mark Dante to get in touch with me um, just kind of spontaneously because she had been reading about it on her own. And so Karen and I began to talk and, you know, Karen is a longstanding member of the Kern Institute and mentioned that this seemed to be very in line with the goals of the Kern Institute in terms of um, the, the transformation of medical education, um, focusing on caring and character. 
um, and competence as well. Um, and so she had kind of had her own interest in mattering that she had communicated to Drs. Higgins and Patton, um, who had done a small project. And so then all of us started talking um, and obviously bringing in Natalie May, who's my colleague here at UVA. Um, and there was just so much synergy um, and so much excitement when we started talking. Um, and so I think in terms of how that ended up defining a project, you know, all of the work that we had done up to that point had been in practicing clinicians, and we really hadn't started exploring this in students at all, or in students in healthcare professions. Like I said, there, there's a separate body of literature related to education, not in healthcare. Um, and it just seemed like um, the perfect place to start an exploration um, to, to bring together this world of mattering in education and this world of mattering in healthcare and to look at what we can do for our students, how we can create this for our students and whether or not it actually makes a difference if we do. So one of the complicating factors for putting together that team and doing the planning uh, was that this happened during the coronavirus pandemic, which as we're recording is still going on. I'm curious, were there any complications that that, uh, that that pandemic brought on? And conversely, were there any opportunities that it brought on? So, you know, I, I think it would be silly to say that things didn't get a little bit more difficult in the course of the pandemic. Everything got a little bit more difficult in um, the course of the pandemic. But I would have to say on the balance, I think the pandemic was actually advantageous <laughs> for us in this research um, for a couple of reasons. One is because everyone became much more facile with teleconferencing, right? So everyone learned Zoom and now we have these software packages that can transcribe your meeting. Um, and all of that really facilitated our ability to do this work. It allowed those of us at the University of Virginia to interview students at the Medical College of Wisconsin and vice versa. Um, it allowed us to become a much more cohesive team uh, because we can meet um, all together on a Zoom platform and have really rich discussions about what we're finding out. Um, and so from a process standpoint, I think that we were able to do things that we would not have been able to do prior to the pandemic. But in addition to that, I think it's given us some really interesting insights um, into our educational process and into what our students experience, because we're learning about what's important to them in the classroom, we're learning about what's important to them in their clinical rotations, and we're also learning about it now in the context of what happens when those things that you expect to be some kind of normal get interrupted. Um, and so I feel like we actually probably have a much richer data set um, as a result of the unfortunate disruption of people's educational experience because of the pandemic. So you feel like maybe students and, and educators and everyone in the system is able to have a, a deeper reflection on what mattering means but because of these experiences? Do you think that's something uh, that's going on? Well, you know, so some of the things that we've heard from the students is that um, 
when classes got migrated online and everyone got sent home, um, this, the loss of the sense of community that they had, um, that they weren't able to necessarily get together in small groups and do that kind of group work the way that they had done or have study groups in the library, right? And that those were things that they really missed. Um, they also talked about how difficult it was to establish relationships um, with their professors um, and to, to really kind of make some of those connections that you really only make face-to-face. -face. Um, and I think it also impacted um, in the clinical realm, you know, some things have started moving to telemedicine. And the one student described how it was really hard for her to come in and do her initial H&P or history and physical um, on the patient because then the physician uh, or the attending was going to have to come in behind her and do the same thing. And for the efficiencies of telemedicine, no one wanted to do it in that staged way that we tend to do in the clinic. Um, and so those are things, those are insights that none of us would have had um, prior to, to this experience that we've been having over the past couple of years. Yeah, it's it certainly, it's, pieces in, um, we can call them calamities or we can call them whatever, the obstacles or anything else that comes our way when it's unexpected and make changes in the um, expectations or even the outcomes that we thought we were going to get and the hypothesis that we've made may be different based on all of this uh, pieces that come apart or together. I am curious, Is now being about a year since the award was granted, could you share with us any preliminary data, any information that you're able to share at this stage of the project? Oh, the, there's so much, um, you know, as, as I was mentioning, you know, the beauty and, and the pitfall in some cases of qualitative research is just how rich your data can be. And uh, it seems like every time we look at it, we're finding something new and more interesting that we also want to, to um, explore more. Um, but one thing that I think that we can definitively say is that mattering is really important to our students, um, both medical and nursing students, um, and that they can very clearly relate experiences both of mattering and of being made to feel that they do not matter. Um, and so, so that I think is first and foremost. The second thing, and this is consistent to what we found in our clinician studies, is that mattering really tends to come out of the small moments, the everyday interactions. It's not the grandiose gestures. It's not the winning the best student of the year. It's really about someone took an interest in me. They learned my name. They asked my story. They were interested in what my goals were and helped me achieve them. Um, it's moments of connections with a patient and a patient's family. We had one nursing student who talked about how um, her, her patient had been very isolated because it was a, a period during 
COVID where they weren't allowed to have people visit. And she talked about how she was able to sit with that patient who loved breakfast more than anything. And no one ever had time. She had some dysphagia. She wasn't able to eat well. And it took her a very long time to eat. So she said, you know, I actually had the time and I sat at that patient's bedside and let them take every single mouthful until they were done. And just talked about how that moment made her feel like she had really contributed to the care of that patient and how appreciative that patient was. And and that kind of gets to, I think, the other major finding. And, and again, there are so many others. Um, but our students really, really, really want to contribute. They want to feel like they are doing something that lessens the work of the team. They want to feel like they are doing something to enhance the patient's experience. They want to feel like they are somehow having an impact, that they're not a fly on the wall, they're not extraneous, um, but that they are some way contributing. And I think that that's something, um, again, a hypothesis I have that's become harder and harder to do. Um, you know, when I was a medical student, if I didn't draw the labs, the labs didn't get drawn. Right. But now there are phlebotomy teams and all, you know, and all of this was done with the best of intentions, right, to try and take some of the, the scut away and enhance the learning environment. But it also took away one of the ways that we could, in a very concretely wet, concrete way, contribute as a student. Um, and so I think that we need to be very cognizant of the things that the students are capable of doing and allowing them to do those things. So Julie, one of the things that I think is so interesting when we're talking about research with students is that it's sometimes easy when we're finding things that are surprising to fall into a, uh, a mindset of, well, you know, young people these days are like this. <laughs> and one of the things I like about mattering as a concept is that it really speaks across all ages uh, both ages in terms of a person's lifespan, but also ages in terms of, you know, eras of medical practice. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering, as you're hearing these students speak, are you struck more that their experience is very unique? Or are you struck more to look back at past students you've worked with and past experiences you've said and think, wow, we were really blind to this until we started prioritizing mattering? That's a tough question. I, I do think um, I do think it's a universal concept, right? And I don't think that I wanted to matter any more or less when I was a medical student in the 1990s that our students want to now in the 2020s. Um, I think the way that it can manifest has probably changed over time. Um, and I think it's changed, you know, and I and I think it's going to be contextual in any situation, right? I mean, we're even hearing about differences from how you can matter on a psych rotation to how you can matter on a surgery rotation, right? And so I think um, I think it's very context dependent. Yes, I, there are definitely moments where I listen to these and I think, oh, these students these days, right? But then I also think, well, you know, their reality is very different than what our reality was. And so, you know, they're, and, and also some of the complaints that they have are the same ones that I had 30 years ago. 
Um, and so I think, I think we're seeing both the evolution of our educational process and also a number of things that haven't changed much at all. Um, did I get to the, the root of your question there, Michael? Yeah, you sure did, Julie. Yeah. No, you did great. Michael, let me let me interject just for a second. Julie, you're absolutely right. You know, we were medical students, you know, 30 years ago, and we faced some of the same pieces, some of the same challenges that our medical students face today. And again, you're absolutely right. The the world has changed. The technology has changed. The ability to gain information is on the tip of your fingers, you know, um, as opposed to then that you had to walk to the library, get the book, find out some of the information. Now, as you said, telemedicine, you know, pulls um, a Zoom and here you are, you can talk to the patient, you can examine them, to the best that you can, or at least get some history from them. It's, I think, an incredible way of both opportunity to allow us to get that extra piece, no matter where you are, and knowledge, no matter, you know, again, where you are, but it also gives us that perhaps, um, challenge of not having the connection because that connection is not always there. Have you discovered some of that piece from um, the um, interviews that you've done that the students are having more than just, I cannot physically do the exam. Have you gotten a little more of that isolation piece from the students because we are more on this Google world? Yes, I, I mean, I, I think so. Um, and also I think that there's an opportunity to even be more connected, um, you know, so, so yes. I, I, and I think in some ways it depends so much on the students, right? Um, there's one student that we talked to who, you know, saw a patient in clinic and then looked some stuff up and made sure that they called him back and, you know, really used all of this technology to give them an opportunity to really stay connected um, to a patient after they had had an initial encounter. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, you can you can also hear students who are saying, well, I really couldn't connect to this patient. And so I really didn't feel that sense of of um, the development of a relationship. And so, I, you know, I think um, here again, there, there are so many different circumstances that come into play. And I think that the technology, much the same as when we were talking about COVID, you know, had both has both advantages and disadvantages in terms of generating mattering. Um, but in the classroom, I will tell you, um, the people who seem to be taking more advantage of all of the online opportunities for learning, I think probably we can say are missing out um, on the connections that they would have if they were attending class in person. Thinking about your project, Julie, and, and about all the collaboratory projects, it's our hope that this model of building cross-institutional and interdisciplinary teams is something that can grow within medical education and that our modest awards are just a small part of that. Uh, and so part of our conversation here that I want to make sure we take time for is thinking about what these multidisciplinary cross-institutional teams 
can look like going forward and if they can learn from those that have gone before. So as you reflect back on your first year of doing this work, any challenges that you encountered that you either that you haven't been able to address or that you were able to address and overcome that you would want to share with with future groups looking to do this kind of collaboratory model? Well, I think anytime two institutions are starting to work with each other for the first time, um, getting the relationships between the IRBs at the respective institutions um, takes a little time and effort. Um, nothing was insurmountable by any stretch of the imagination, but trying to figure out, are we getting two separate IRBs? Are we having one IRB depend on the other IRB? Um, you know, And I think that that's going to be different in every case, probably. Um, in doing work with um, students in particular, there are also some additional hoops to jump through in terms of getting approvals to actually interview and talk to students. Um, so we have a separate review board in addition to the IRB at UVA, and it sounds like there's also one at MCW as well. So that was just, you know, just layers of things that we needed to address um, that that pushed our getting started back a little bit. Um, again, nothing that's insurmountable, but I think the recognition that that time, um, you know, when you're doing something with with a timeline, um, you know, anything that pushes something back a month can really impact where you can get to at the end. Um, with regards to the interprofessionalism, um, you know, I, I think, and in, in Herodotus, this gets back to your question about the findings. This is something that I, I could not feel more strongly about, um, that these interprofessional collaborations really do need to be happening. And we do need to be thinking about these beyond our individual educational silos. Um, one of the things that we found in our clinician study is when you talked about what made them feel like they mattered, it very frequently had to do with the teams with whom they work, um, interprofessional individuals, um, you know, pharmacists who felt very connected because the nurses asked them drug information questions or the, the physicians included them on rounds and took, in, took their um, uh, recommendations into, into account, right? That um, nurses had the opportunity to um, pick up on something subtle that ultimately made a big difference in terms of how the rest of the team managed the patient, right? And so that came up all the time in our clinician studies, but it was actually very rarely discussed with our students. Um, our students talk about how, you know, outside of the study, since I do work in interprofessional education, our students talk all the time about how they want to work with other students. But when I talk to them about their mattering experience, it's all very uniprofessional. Um, they talk about, if they're in medical school, they talk about the residents, they talk about their attendings, they talk about their professors, they don't talk about the nurses, they don't talk about the residents, except in a rare occasion, um, where some nurse said something to a medical student that just totally made their day um, and really enhanced their sense of mattering. Or, you know, or more commonly, it's derogatory uh, or a sense of anti-mattering where 
the nurse told me I couldn't scrub into the surgery or, you know, or, or something like that. Right. And then the nursing students, when we interviewed them, they really don't have any concept of what's happening in the medical school curriculum at all. And, and quite frankly, it sounds like they're pretty much ignored by all the other professions in the hospital. And so I think that this is, this is a really key point, I think. Um, we're putting them together in simulations, but then when they go off to work in the hospital, they're not really collaborating, uh, at least not according to what we're hearing in this particular study. And when they do, it's not generally favorable. Well, it's interesting, Julie, that you brought that up because it, it brings me to my next question is future directions. But before I go there, I personally think that the world of living in silos is no longer the norm, is no longer the accepted you know, piece that we had maybe 30, 40 years ago. Now it's the multidisciplinary teams. And unless we create them and connect them together, not just in the simulation environment, we are going to fail. I'm curious of your take on that statement. And also, what do you think the future direction should be with regards to the mattering piece? Yeah, so you know, closing out on the, the IPE component, you know, the, for, for years now, IPEC and everyone else has been saying we need to be learning with, from, and about each other. Um, and, we, you know, I, I've been working in this arena for explicitly for about seven or eight years now. And I'm, I'm discouraged um, that maybe we're not having as much impact as I would like to believe that we are. Um, so I definitely think that there's room for growth there. Um, and, and I think that this study actually helps to shed some light on places where we could have more impact, right? Where if you ask an attending, hey, if you're going to sit down and give a chalk talk to the med students, see if there are any nursing students on the unit that you could bring in to listen, right? I mean, that would take no extra time, no extra effort, um, and could really make a big impact, right? Or, you know, could a nurse on the floor bring a medical student in and say, let me show you, you know, in the ICU, let me show you this ventilator, let me show you these drips, let me show you what we're watching so that when you know what's important to us and how that relates back to what's important to you, right? These things would not take a lot of time and effort. I just don't think we think about them, right? Um, so then going back to your question about what's next with the with the mattering studies. Um, so one thing is, you know, I think that we're starting to, to get some of these insights um, now about ways that things can make a difference, like the ones that I just um, suggested. So maybe we start doing some interventions, right, where we actually ask people to start doing some of these things and then go back and ask the students, did this make a difference? Um, and so, you know, obviously that's that's our lo our long-term goal, right? Is to actually start doing things that makes this better. Um, but I think that, that we've also, um, 
we've heard some really interesting things from first gen students. Um, we've heard some really interesting things from um, students from underrepresented groups. Um, you know, our end was of each of those was relatively small compared to our overall study group. And so there might be room for more exploration there. Um, we're just starting um, our interviews with the faculty exemplars um, that the students identified. Um, I think we're gonna find out some really interesting information from them as we start analyzing that data. And so I think that um, then starting to think about how we can bring together what we learn from the faculty exemplars and the students together. Um, and, and my guess is that we're gonna find um, actually something that we're already hearing from the students is the sense of reciprocity, right? The student makes the, you know, if the student feels like they matter to the educator, right? And then they work harder because they matter to the educator and that working harder is evident to the professor, then that has to make the professor feel like they matter, right? And so I think that there's a virtuous cycle um, that we're going to uncover uh, that ultimately could could help us all. I like the word virtuous, a virtuous cycle. Um, Julie, I appreciate your time and um, all of the work that your team has put together for this really important topic, I think, for medical education, for professional identity formation, for, for our profession in general, for interprofessional discipline. Any last message for our audience that may come from you, from your team, that will leave, um, leave it us? Well, I think I can uh, state on behalf of all of my team, we're so very grateful to the Kern Institute for allowing us to explore this work. Um, you know, our, our work doesn't fit nicely in any little box um, that that normally is explored in healthcare or healthcare education and, and is a little bit on the fringe. And so this idea that Kern could see the possibility um, in the work that we were wanting to do and, and gave us this opportunity, we, we could not be more grateful. Um, and so, you know, I guess my, my message would be, you know, don't be afraid to, to look outside the box, right? Or, or to, to think about things in a way that other people haven't been thinking about them, right? You don't get out of a broken system by continuing to do what you've been doing all along. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. We are so excited today to be talking to Dr. Sean Tackett, Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And Sean is one of the principal investigators for one of our collaboratories. So Sean, let's just get uh, started right away. Introduce yourself to us and then tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Michael. It's good to join you in Herodotus today. So I'm a general internist at Johns Hopkins and my academic interest is international medical education, actually. Um, but uh, I kind of, my academic work's kind of started to coalesce around educational technologies, health, like medical education policy, 
and then like fun creative projects like this blind spots project that we're going to talk about. Yeah, awesome. Let's let's jump right into that. So so what's the title of your project? And give us uh, give us kind of a rundown of the members of your team, and then we'll get more in detail into your project. You know, I, I think the formal title is something like uh, a collaboratory to map medical education's blind spots. Although kind of lost, we just, we just refer to it as like the blind spots project uh, when we talk to one another. And then the other members of the team are Yvonne Steinert from McGill, Cynthia Whitehead, who's at University of Toronto, Darcy Reed, uh, who's at Mayo, and Scott Wright, who's with me in my division at Hopkins. And then Susan Mirabal is a general medicine fellow who's also at Hopkins, who's kind of come on in year two to help out. So let's let's go right away. It's the Blind Spots Project. It's in the title. Before we get going, what's a blind spot? What is a blind spot? <laughs> so that's the uh, that's ten million dollar question. We um so we 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 didn't know it, was, it sounded like something catchy, but, um and we've we've tried to figure it out. So like I guess the way we've come to to present it to other people, right? Is that there's this physiologic blind spot. And so when you get down to like the science and the anatomy of it that everybody has, where the optic nerve meets the retina, you actually have a blind spot. And you close one eye, you can like actually can't see how that, that you can't see that blind spot at all. And so this way you have two eyes so that each can compensate for, for one another. And then there is like other sort of visual based blind spots where, you know, if you're driving, right? You have like the guy's driving my blind spot and I can't see, and you have to turn your head and, and see. And um, so we, there's there's that kind, but then there's the other kind I think that's kind of in the common in the vernacular about like biases and assumptions. Like you know, we all have kind of blind spots, shared assumptions that we just and um, it, and so it, for the project, we kind of come to embrace any kind of blind spot. But the, the idea is that no matter who you are, you've got some kind of blind spot, and you need help trying to see your blind spot. You know, if if there's a few different people and they're all looking in the same direction. They need help seeing what's behind them or, 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 ch or checking their assumptions and that we all kind of need all the help we can get for seeing blind spots. And, and Sean, I'm just as a follow-up on your bigger definition of blind spots and well, how come you guys decided to propose this project as part of a, this research idea? Serendipity, I think. So before this, the RFA came out, um, we had started to have like blind spots conversations um, where, you know, so several months before the RFA came out, we, Scott and I were reaching out to individual people whose work we respected and who were, who were, who, their work was very different than ours. And we just chatted with them for a half an hour, hour. And then once we had enough of those kind of conversations with individuals, we decided to have a group get together. And then once we had this group of like pretty, you know, like very expert people who are very accomplished in medical education, we had to figure out what to do with, with them and, and like how to organize a conversation that was really like open-ended, you know, that we wanted to just be free flowing. And so the only thing we um, gave as a constraint was that we were gonna talk about medical education's blind spots. And so we had probably two or three of those kind of conversations before the RFA came out. And when the RFA came out, um, you know, we, we tried to come up with a proposal that made sense that linked to this concept. Um, and then we like, I remember in the RFA still that it said they wanted audacious proposals. And so we figured this was definitely audacious because we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, so how can anybody else? And we were just gonna try to run with it. Well, and I was really impressed by the wealth of experts that your team encompasses. Can you tell me a little bit about 
you know, just how you pick the members or again, serendipity perhaps, or previous knowledge or collaboration. Help me out understand a little bit the work process with that. I think, um, so the people who have kind of become the core team were the people we were probably closest to is who were part of these blind spots discussions originally. I think they knew us and trusted us well enough to, you know, want to work with us substantively. Um, the rest of the people who were there in the, in the early going were, uh, some of them were people who we didn't know very well at all, but like people, you know, just, we had read their work and it was, it was, you know, just different and they were open to talking with us. Um, and so, so it's been like that. So I, I know, you know, Scott and Darcy Reed had a pretty close relationship because she was a fellow at Johns Hopkins whenever he was, you know, so, or, and still is overseeing the fellowship in general medicine. Um, and then Cynthia, I knew a bit, and I think Scott kind of knew Yvonne from McGill. And so, you know, but we, we, we hadn't really, we had never worked together as a group before. So Sean, I, I'm, I'm struck by this, this interesting idea of pulling in people you've never worked with before in this topic. And I, I'm wondering, as you got to know people and are exploring this topic of blind spots, are there any qualities in a researcher or a research partner that make someone better equipped to explore blind spots? Well, I, I, so, so I guess one thing I can say that um, I think without this group and, and their level of experience and expertise, like this project couldn't have even gotten to where it, where it is right now, um, just because it was, it was challenging. Um, so it's, it certainly helps to have like, you know, that quantitative, qualitative expertise uh, and, and openness to being, uh, to receiving critical feedback, to being critical, you know, like to have that critical eye. Um, so we've, we've, we've definitely struggled through parts of the year amicably, you know, but, but all, all recognize that this is like a, a challenging project. I, I think just in terms of like what kind of personality is, is the kind to like look for blind spots in general. I mean, it's, I think, and we, I think we should all be doing more, you know, to, to try to identify, to be open to having other CR blind spots. So this award was given uh, at a time in an ongoing time, the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, in which getting together face-to-face -face is something that a lot of uh, med schools were saying, please do not do it unless you absolutely have to. And I'm wondering about the effect that the pandemic had on your planning and implementation of your project. Any barriers, any facilitators? Yeah, it was, it's, it's interesting to reflect on that. I, I think that it, it may have been more facilitators and barriers, oddly enough, um, such, such that, you know, with, with the our our team right um if, if the pandemic wasn't restricting travel a lot of them probably would have been on the road and it would have been very hard for us to just find time that we weren't out somewhere doing something um and then equally for the people that we recruited as like key informants for this for the like the research subjects i mean a lot of them were like national leaders in in whatever position they held and whatever perspective they were representing and so i think that there's a good chance that they were more like uh, available and willing to contribute because they weren't quite as busy, you know, running around doing other things. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Sean, and we've heard this over and over again that the opportunities that the COVID nineteen pandemic brought to academicians is yes, it restricted them from traveling, but it allowed us the flexibility to be at home and have that opportunity to uh, engage with other academicians throughout the world and perhaps allowed us to improve that communication and eventual collaboration to, for projects like this. Um, one of the pieces that I thought, any, and actually one of the follow-up questions, any barriers that you found? 
Not, not, I mean, not from a pandemic standpoint. You know, we had, we had designed our project to be successful online, and and I, and I you know, it's it's really nice to to kind of go back to back to back meetings and then not having to go anywhere. So you know, you can meet with people, these this team in Canada, um, and you can meet with these other you know people across the street, and you don't have to like I don't have to get up out of my chair most of the day. You know, um, so I think that that did definitely that, so that, that helped our study. Um, yeah, but I don't I can't really honestly think about too many. Yeah, I can't identify any obvious barriers the pandemic imposed on us. And following up on a little bit about the um, award, and it's now been about a year plus, any uh, preliminary results or any findings that you could share with us? The upshot is that the, the research project that we, we proposed to map blind spots I mean, we've gotten to a place where I think we're all pre- we feel pretty good about where we are with that in the sense that we we have a map, you know, it has like 208 blind spots on it, and then we we kind of cluster those into like nine domains. You think of like continents on a map, you know, um, and then and we have a name we have names for those, and we I, we think we kind of understand how you know what's in each of the domains, and then how the domains link to, to one another, um, and, and then you know our, our manuscript is drafted. So we're just kind of fine tuning it at this point before we submit it. So that's that's uh, gone well. But, but even along the way, you know, I think we've, we've kind of come up with some other like discoveries and so on. Yeah. And as a curious, any um, an example of a mapped blind spot that you found and perhaps said something that was unexpected? I would say the I guess because somebody out there who's, who's part of our research study saw a blind spot, it's not gonna be blind to everybody. Um, but, but I think that um, I, we were probably all impressed by just how, how broad the categories were. We only had 27 people um, who were stakeholders submit blind spots, you know, but they, they, they were as diverse as we get them. So it included, you know, patients, students, um, nurses, pharmacists, um, as, as well as, you know, people you think of as really with, within medical education. Um, and, and, and so from them, you know, we, the, the domains kind of talk about traditional teaching and learning kind of um, activities and, and, and programs, you know, it's so like admissions um, to medical school and how teaching learning happens, assessment, curriculum design, uh, those kinds of things. But it, 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 you know, and then they talk about other things you probably expect to see just given what, what the literature is putting out there with in terms of like inequities, diversity, the, those and professionalism being important. Um, but it even put them in like the health system, you know, it, put the, it talked about like government and bureaucracy and and financing and, and issues that I, I think a lot of people don't commonly think about. So I, I really felt like it, so maybe probably one of the surprises was just how, how comprehensive it was despite the fact that we had a fairly small sample. So Sean, one of the things that you and I have communicated about over email when it comes to disseminating these results is that you're very focused on making sure that your work goes through rigorous peer review and then hopefully gets published. And then at that point in time, we'll feel more confident disseminating the results. Uh, and I, I really share that value with you of the importance of peer review when it comes to, to disseminating these results. I'm curious, as you think about what this procedure is going to be like sending this manuscript off to a journal, what are you hoping to get from that peer reviewer? If you, if you get your dream reviewer, what kind of things will they be really digging into the manuscript and what kind of feedback would you love to get from them? Uh, well, I guess, yeah, I don't know how, how corny should I be, uh, but I would want them to find our blind spots, right? They're peer reviewers. That's, that's the goal of the whole process. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's for what's, what's 
well, I guess there, there are two, kind of two interrelated concepts there. One is what do, what do, what does our team hope for when we submit it? That they'll say like, that's very good, you know, <laughs> and, and the we minimal feedback because we were kind of already anticipated any peer review receipt and it's like highest quality you can get. And um, I think what, the, the more generic question of like, what's good peer review, you know, um, would be just somebody, I, I think constructive for sure and, and careful. I, I actually kind of value uh, an empathetic peer reviewer. I feel like peer reviewers tend not to be quite as like um, putting themselves in the shoes of the researcher as often as they could, you know, and understanding like there's always going to be some limitation, there's always going to be something wrong, you know, and like, and just like, let's just understand what, how, how they made decisions about where to make trade-offs between the ideal and kind of the feasible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You brought again a very important piece of Michael, you asked a question about peer review and I am a reviewer for a Journal of Graduate Medical Education. And I find it many times thinking on the back of my mind while I'm making it, you know, the assumptions or putting out a review and giving feedback that, my goodness, how difficult was this process for the researchers to plan, to um, put the pieces together or their team together and then execute, which I find it an important piece for our audience to know that this is an important, um, a critical piece in the work that we do, but it also so important for us to remember that the work that our researchers are doing, including you, Sean, and your team, uh, that it takes hours and hours and hours of planning, um, reevaluating, adapting, executing, and so on. So thank you for all you do, but that's, it's an important piece for the audience to know. It also strikes me that in some cases, when we're dealing in topics like blind spots, First off, by their very nature, you're not going to have captured every single blind spot. And as you said, what's a blind spot to one person may not be a blind spot to someone else. And I would hope that a reviewer would have empathy for that, you know, saying a critique in which you say these three blind spots, they're not blind spots at all. I'm perfectly aware of them. And these blind spots, I've never heard of them. They, they can't be blind spots or I would have thought about them. You know, something like that is ultimately not useful. Um, but I, I still hope that there is that critical review and that in-depth thinking, because I, I think ultimately for a topic like blind spots that has, in my view, really intuitive appeal, that we can all learn something by exploring this, there still needs to be, you know, that scholarly rigor. Um, now, obviously, I hope this manuscript sails right through as well. So fingers, fingers crossed for that. Sean, I did have another, you know, kind of a, a piece that you mentioned and that was interesting to me. You mentioned that your interests are in international medical education. And one of the pieces is medical education policy. And the other one is blind spots, obviously the project that you're working on. Implications of this process, of this project in more of a global piece, as well as, as a follow, as part two in medical education policy. I think, well, I mean, the, the international part of it is, is something we're actively working on now. I mean, that's that's year two is is to, to this we couch the these blind spots in the U.S. medical education system, and so we only recruited stakeholders intentionally from U.S. medical who have that bring that perspective. So this current year is 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 to test out the framework on uh, and, and like people who are outside of the U.S. and uh, and so that it'll be a, we're doing it through a survey 
but you know, we're looking for two, I guess two things primarily. One would just be variation in, in perspectives and priorities among, you know, depending on where you are and maybe your role in a given context. Uh, and, and then I think the second thing we're going to be looking for is our new blind spots identified when we send it out to a much broader group of, of individuals. Um, so that that's, yeah, that's the kind of th this year's work. Um, and then the medical education policy thing, I, I think is, is, yeah, interesting angle. I, I, I think looking back on it, I mean, not again, kind of don't know really what you made until you've made it, um, or maybe not even then, but like the, I feel like we, this is a different version of like an expert recommendation report, you know, and, and, and so, and rather than, you know, a, a small group of experts who are, you know, going out and then filtering everything through their, um, through their own opinions, you know, we didn't visit schools, we didn't um, talk to, you know, different, so it wasn't based on our observations, conversations, et cetera, and our, or our own opinions. Like this was very like ground up. This is completely stakeholder driven. And we, as the, as the research team, were, were there to facilitate conversations kind of among these different stakeholders. Because when I look at the nine domains and, you know, and just what's, what's in them, I, again, I feel like it's much broader than um, something I've seen before. And I, and I actually can't think of anything that it leaves out. I, I do have, um, I thought it was interesting that you guys just came back from the um, international conference, essentially in Lyon, France, the AMI conference. Was there any feedback that perhaps you got from that group of people? So that was uh, feedback kind of, I mean, what, what one interesting thing about it was that was that was a good example of like a blind spots conversation. It was a works, workshop where we were asking, you know, ran, whoever showed up, right, and sit wherever you want to sit. And if you're a senior person, you're a student, whomever, right, sit together, and we're, we're going to have you talk about blind spots. And let's see how that goes. And let's see, like, you know, um, it, it, yeah, what kind of atmosphere that creates. And, and ended up, I think, creating a very positive atmosphere is, you know, we had, Amy was a, it's a big conference. And, and so we weren't the only workshop that had kind of a, a packed house, but we had, we, we were full, um, like 60 some people. And, uh, and it was just a very lively conversation. The room was kind of loud the entire time that people were talking and um, very engaged and thinking about what are the blind spots. And then, and then each person kind of discussing things from their own point of view and then starting to think about what they're going to do with them. So I, that, that as a, as a bit of feedback on like, how does this concept operationalize in, into practice, you know, and maybe changing the way we do things was kind of a, interesting proof of concept to, you know, to, to go through that. Um, a lot of the blind spots people raised, I think we, we could probably put on our map. I don't know that we had any that were like, obviously, you know, their own unique thing off, left off in the ocean. But, um, uh, um, and I think the other thing that from the international audience was, I, I guess, around the language of it. Uh, so, like, you know, blind spot uh, in English, you know, what does that mean in Italian or what does that mean uh, in, in French or whichever other language of people who were there. And so we, we had just a very brief conversation with the group, you know, with the, the participants around that. Although I, I do think even despite whatever language was their first language, they were able to kind of get the idea about like what a blind spot was and like how to start having, talking about them. Oh, this, this brings out the English major in me and I start thinking about, well, if we call them blind spots, how does that metaphor shape the way we think about it? Whereas if we call them oversights or, or whatever whatever another word might be, how does that change our framing of the conversation? I, I think it's I think really in a, in, in a major way. I mean, I I was I've been worried the entire time that we're just like saying the same thing and, and just using a different word. But I, I guess that's what a metaphor is often, right? And and that that and that actually matters a lot of the time. 
Um, Cause like people will naturally talk about biases when they talk about blind spots, right? But if biases, I think has a negative connotation, you know, I think it tends to put people, somebody on the defensive and somebody else on the offensive. The blind spots, what tends to happen is like you create the like the yes and culture, you know, from the improv, the like yes. So there's no, not yes, but it's not no. So like people, you know, you have a blind spot. Okay, I, I do too. And, and that person over there does. And let's talk about each, each person's blind spot. And, and it's, yeah, even though it's, it is the same topics often, um, they tend to just be more uh, easier, like more easily approached. And ultimately we're, in some ways, we're thinking about priorities. Like, can we focus on every possible thing at every possible moment? Probably not. There, there will always be things we overlook. But the more we talk about what those things are, the more that they come up and the more they can hopefully meld together. Um, so you have done some pretty incredible work with bringing together these people. I know you downplayed, you said, oh, it's only 27 people we brought together or however many it was. But nevertheless, bringing all those people together is really incredible. And I'm wondering about some of the challenges, whether it was bringing people together or, or other challenges that you faced over the past 15 months or so of working on this project. I think there's some boring challenges, but, but excuse me, that mattered to us. Um, so, you know, we spent probably the first few months of the of the funding just like trying to figure out can we share a document in OneDrive or Google or somewhere and you know between McGill and Toronto and Mayo and Hopkins is that possible and the answer ended up being like no we cannot we, there's no way for us to figure out because the different permissions to different places and so our you know so kind of put that one to bed and we just email documents and then IRB spent uh, just and really ultimately for one of our team members it became intractable like they they you know we, we had a certain kind of put earmuffs on whenever we, whenever we were talking about certain things related to data, just because they weren't formally members of, of that aspect of the study. Um, and so it was very, yeah, that, that, that was hard. Um, in, in terms of like bringing together, I, I, our, our methods, everything was asynchronous. So, so the 27 key informants, we were able to reach them on, on their time. There's a lot of emailing, you know, and then occasionally um, if, if one of us might, kind of know one or the other, you know, like that um, we would reach out, but, um, but for the most part, we are, we were able to get people without, um, yeah, I was, I was surprised at how we were able to get people. So, and, and cause the 27 people, one of the things we're worried about was response rate because we're going to have to report a denominator, all the people we reached out to versus all the people who responded. And the 27, I think we ended up with like a response rate of around 50%. And given that I was often emailing strangers who I would look up online and, you know, and just try to try to select them based on their, you know, their perspective and who they might represent. Um, like that's, I felt that was pretty good. Um, and, and we, and we were really going as, as diverse as we could get. So we were, we were very conscientious to not just go with like my friend or Scott's friend or Yvonne's friend, you know, we, we really wanted it to be like kind of representative and diverse. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, you brought some very key pieces in a researcher's life, right? It's the IRB part, the how are we going to share documentation? How are we going to talk to each other? And I am amazed how you were able to pull some of those together because that's one of the most difficult pieces, I think, in all of our lives when we do academic research. I also think that the pandemic brought up some platforms that they were unexpected. And um, 
it's a good thing for us. You know, we talk about the pandemic and obviously how difficult it was for everyone, the isolation you know, of everyone involved globally. At the same time, it provided some opportunities that they were unexpected for all of us. And you started mentioning a few of the surprises that they were uncovered. Any other surprises that, you know, aha moments or pieces that any of the team members have thought that were just not expected when you were putting the project together? I mean, I would love to tell you that there were like certain moments where it's just like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And, and, I, and maybe there were. I mean, I don't want to dwell on a negative. I think that uh, actually this workshop was a real highlight. I think we didn't know what was going to happen at Amy, you know, when we walked in there and we were kind of overwhelmed at how positive and, and like how productive, you know, th those conversations were. Um, and, and obviously like that is going to feel that way when you're in person and it, you can't really ever feel that way in the same manner and when you're online or if you're writing an email or if you're like submitting a paper or anything like that. Um, even though perhaps the people on the other end were like, oh, wow, that's great too. Um, the, I do think, I mean, certain other surprises um, were, were, in my mind, were about sort of surmounting challenges and coming to conceptual clarity and and just like just the process of working through some of these really hard things, like um, like what is a blind spot? You know, like we we started off with just with nothing. We started with like dictionary definition and how it's talked about in public, and I, and over time, and actually working through it on it as part of a manuscript, a conceptual paper that it's just gonna just got accepted. Um, like our team, I I think like really kind of came onto the same page around what, what we mean and, and why this is important and why this, like, why everybody should be doing this. Because I'm not sure that anybody, any of us under thought beyond just like the fun, shiny object of like, you know, the new concept of blind spot until we finish that paper. Um, and then for me, the other thing that's on my, my bucket list is, is to try to um, formalize this idea of like a medical education system that we use to, to um, help us identify key informants and perspectives to represent. And so we, you know, we've, we've taken it about halfway there. It was like good enough for the, you know, for recruiting people. But, but I think that's it was a new idea um, that uh, that I, I think has promise, and we could kind of chase after it too. Well, I think that's interesting connection to the workshop you ran because I I could see this concept becoming. I don't I don't want to just talk like commercialization of ideas, but I can see this as a workshop that goes to medical schools and maybe to even even broader other educational institutions and other places where there is a technique to identify these blind spots. Um, I think it it's something that could speak to almost any field of study or any field of practice that there are going to be these blind spots and a a way to identify those, a procedure that is both productive, but also hopefully enjoyable and enlightening. So it doesn't feel like you're being forced to undertake some kind of challenging exercise in which you're continually being told how ignorant you are. That's so powerful. Um, so it's really cool, Sean, to hear you say that, that that's something that maybe could come from this. We're hopeful. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like if, if you're doing something new, often you're either, um, like a genius or an idiot, and and we're hoping we're hoping that uh, this new thing people will will look at it and, and think that it's it's good and um and that uh and that um and that we're not just you know well you've probably seen this video of like the, the person at the concert dancing wildly in 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 the grass alone, and, and he just looks like a crazy idiot for until all the people join him and then they're all dancing with him and then everybody's dancing and then. So hopefully we're we're like that you know that crazy idiot idiot uh, standing alone for now, but other people kind of join, join in. Um, 
and uh and yeah i mean so and and if we are that i mean we we've already thought of many directions to take this i mean both from like a theoretical like research scholarship standpoint but also like the sort of the applied um standpoint of just having like blind spots discussions everywhere you are and you know and thinking of in those terms yeah t talk us through a little bit more of those future directions uh, i love the i love the call to the dance floor that you're issuing here what uh what does that future direction look like? What's what's the pitch? What's the key song that's playing that's going to bring all folks out to the dance floor? There's not one. Um, it, it's it, it really it really could. I I, I mean so from a from the theoretical standpoint, like the blue sky research standpoint. I mean we there's so much work that could be done with further exploring blind spots. You know why did, why is this appealing to people? Why does why does this make them either or think or, or speak differently about challenging issues? Um, and, you know, there, there's a whole line of research that could go along with that. There's a whole line of research could, could just focus on the nine domains that we've identified and say, like, you know, pick a domain or like what's the relationship between domains. And like, let's figure out, like, you know, diving deeper in, into one or, or multiple. Um, there's uh, there's the, the getting more applied than I think uh, the idea of like a diagnostic instrument. So we're assuming like not not every program is going to have the same blind spots. And, and, and yet like all of them need attention to some degree. So how do you like allocate scarce resources according to what's most important where you are? And so, you know, developing a process for that. Um, and then, yeah, and then, the, then the super applied stuff would just be like we were saying that the, the workshops, conversations, just so there's that, there's a full spectrum, I think, of, 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 of um, activities that could go along with this. So Sean, we, we covered quite a bit of depth um, from this project and we're coming to an end with our uh, podcast episode what would you like to leave the audience with if there were a couple of things that you wanted to impart to the audience what would those be uh, I, I think so I guess I'm gonna focus myself on blind spots I, I just think that uh, it's, it's been fruitful for me to learn how to think in these terms and and, and I do think it's, it's a message of humility um, you know, of always kind of questioning, like, how could you be doing better? Um, and, and then, you know, embracing the perspectives of others. And, and I, these are all messages that are like now are popular and, and we need more of them. And so like, to whatever extent, you know, this, this blind spots, research agenda, or whatever we're doing, you know, just extends that. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll be very happy with that. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was great to hear more about this project. Uh, so for Herodotus Ellenus, I'm Michael Brown, and uh, thanks for listening.